of ID Journey. Um, this time, for the first time, Lane and I are actually uh, in person together back at the ICC for a semester. And Lane, things are starting to go into full swing. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Uh, we spent almost a month away on Christmas break. And that was such a, a good opportunity to rest. Um, and now it's time to sprint. So, Did you use any of that time to work on your capstone? Yeah, so I talked to uh, our instructor, Trey, a bit about the capstone, and maybe some people, we can get into this later, but uh, just to get in contact with some people um, and talk to them, but apart from that, uh, it's all been ruminating and stewing in my brain. Yeah, this is like a weird thing that I feel like we're not going to have an opportunity to have again this time, just to kind of sit at least in a professional environment maybe for a personal project we'll have stuff like this we can do but for professional projects it's going to be I don't know a a rarity I think just to have time just to kind of sit and not be actively like sketching or feeling like you need to get all these deliverables done or just but like letting an idea in your brain kind of like start to develop you know um so the capstone for people that don't know um is just Kind of the, the last project that uh, a senior gets to do that they define really what they're doing for the most part with the assistant of the professors. Um, it's something that is career specific in a way. You try to make it something that you're passionate about and that you're interested in working uh, on uh, in the future. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of the final, the final capstone <laughs> yeah. uh, of like everything you've done. Uh, what, what are you going to be focusing on or what are you looking at for your capstone so i i think maybe i've mentioned this on the podcast before but uh, i'm a big coffee guy Mm -hmm. i drink coffee every day um and ever since i was in high school and i i wrote a paper actually one of my first college classes i wrote a paper about coffee um and i went out to a couple of coffee shops and started really getting into it and wanted to understand what different coffees from different regions tasted like and uh, the different ways to brew coffee. And so ever since then, I've been learning more about that and uh, trying to understand better like what it is that makes coffee so special. Yeah. So for this capstone project, um, I was really interested in getting people who aren't into coffee as a hobby into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost everyone drinks coffee nearly on a daily basis, but not a lot of people, uh, like a lot of my family, will take time to think about like what coffee they're brewing Mm -hmm. and how to get the most out of it. Um, It's more of a utility thing for them. So how do you create a product that is simple and easy to understand, but that also makes really great coffee and can help people enjoy coffee for... uh, really all its complexities um, and at the same time create something that's consistent mm-hmm. so with a lot of, uh, of the really great manual coffee brewers it's hard to get a consistent cup uh, which is really frustrating for people when they're starting out because they feel like if they 
mess any little bit up, yeah. right, their morning coffee is ruined, and that impacts, you know, their mood for maybe the rest of the day. Uh, I know it would for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was, I've been thinking about all of those different things, um, and last semester as I was thinking about that issue, that problem, um, my, my good friend and instructor, Trey, who's also really into coffee, uh, we do coffee tastings together and um, have a, a lot of fun talking about it. He was like, you know, there are people in the industry right now that are trying to figure out a new way to brew coffee. And they're, they're messing around and mixing um, the two big types of coffee brewing, which is percolation, right? Running water through coffee and immersion, which is putting all of your coffee into water so at the like, same time. That would be like a, like a drip coffee versus for, you know, the layman, <laughs> it'd be drip coffee versus like a French press. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, those are the two like prime examples and trying to blend those two together to kind of get the best of both worlds. Mm. Cause percolation is really great for accentuating the specific coffee that you are uh, brewing and mm-hmm. bringing out some of those origin characteristics uh, so that you can taste them and that helps you uh, develop your palate mm-hmm. and you know this is sort of getting into the territory of like wine tasting for example for yeah. people who are familiar with that developing your palate and understanding the drink of coffee a little bit better with immersion brewing which is really consistent and kind of hard to screw up but it kind of muddies some of those origin characteristics and so people are trying to balance the uh the best of both worlds between those two and mm. create something new. And so I think that's also an interesting uh, solution to try to find as well. So I have like a few thoughts when you're talking. Like, so for me, I'm more the utility guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I like just to call like coffee diesel because I buy like the cheapest pods at uh, Walmart, brew it in the cheapest Keurig. Don't put anything in it. It's diesel. It's fuel, right? It gets me through the day. Um, but then that, that was for a bit and I, I was doing that a little bit for a semester. Then I also have a, an espresso, mm-hmm. um, and that has like, Oh look, this one's from Somalia. This one's from Uganda. This one, like it has, it has those like regions. And I do notice the difference in taste. It tastes much better than a regular diesel Keurig <laughs> or yeah. Keurig, whatever people, I don't know how to say it. Um, and I, I feel like the biggest thing that I run into when you talk about your topic is like diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And also, so when I say diminishing returns, I mean, like, how much time and effort, and you, you're obviously thinking about this, like, how much time and effort is the cons- consumer willing to put in without basically, I don't know, it, I'm trying to, like, finish that thought, basically balancing the time and effort compared yeah. to a regular cup of coffee versus the taste of coffee difference. In an interesting problem, part of me, like, I, I don't have a developed palate for coffee. I... I can taste differences, but when you start talking about, oh, like plum or earthy or whatever, nutty, I don't know, there's like all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you hear all these different things, and part of me is like, I don't want to know that much about coffee because I want to be able to go through McDonald's, buy a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and not think it tastes bad. Like, I think right. it tastes like coffee, right? Mm-hmm. What, are your, what are your thoughts on like the person that's like nervous of like, because like, it's kind of like with everything, the more you know about something, the weirder stuff you like. Like, the more you know about music, the weirder music you like. The more yeah. you know about 
Well, I, I just immediately go to audio. Like, if you really like music, then all of a sudden you're buying all these amplifiers, these turntables, whatever, these different audio pieces of audio equipment. That is just so insane. It, 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 you kind of know it's unpractical or mm-hmm. impractical, I guess. But you do it just because it's a passion. So I yeah. guess your thing would be, how do you make somebody passionate about it? I don't know what yeah. you think. So, I mean, there's in every kind of like little niche that you can find, there's always the enthusiasts who have everything. Yeah. And they know everything. And this can be a product for them. Because it's something different, and that's something that they want to experiment with and yeah. mess around with. Most people don't fall into that category. Like yourself, like most people drink coffee because it energizes them. Yeah. Uh, and because it makes them more alert. And that's what people have been drinking coffee for for the past, like, 250 years. Yeah. But they have an opportunity to understand it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Understand coffee a little bit better than what they how they understand it now. Um, but it doesn't have to be an enthusiast level interaction with coffee. And this is something that I've actually experienced a lot because I'm into coffee. I want other people to be into coffee. And so whenever I stay over at someone's house or someone is staying, like my relatives came over for Christmas break and I'll make people coffee the way that I make it or one of the ways that I make it. And I, I don't find that it ruins it for them. I don't, like, they don't, they don't tell me, oh, man, well, I can never go back and drink my, mm-hmm. my Mr. Coffee Pot coffee anymore. They're like, wow, this is really interesting. This is really good. Um, so, obviously, like, people notice the difference. And I think if they could, if they could maintain that sense of simplicity and not have to take you know, like a college level course to understand yeah. how to make good coffee, the the barrier to entry would be low enough where they will make that compromise. Mm-hmm. Where it's not gonna be as fast as a Keurig, but maybe it's ninety percent there. We're good. Yeah, sorry, the audio. Um it's ninety percent of the way there as fast as a Keurig, a yeah. little bit more effort. Mm-hmm. And now they have Maybe not a new hobby, but maybe they have uh, a new interest. Maybe they yeah. have a statement piece in their kitchen uh, that helps, you know... The, conversation. Yeah, or... conversation starter, like that kind of thing. So I think there, there's a need for kind of an intermediate between the guy who has a big Chemex in the mm. middle of his kitchen and the person who maybe only goes out for coffee or, you know, yeah. just uses their, their Mr. Coffee every morning. Yeah. I, I feel like a huge hurdle for you is going to be the story of this is how it makes your life better, mm. right? Because according to you, it's made your life better, like, or else you wouldn't be doing it, like learning more about coffee and all this stuff, saying that this is an experience that makes life richer and more enjoyable mm. by doing something like this versus just the pure utility. Um, and also another audience, I don't know, like, I, I think, I feel like that's going to be the biggest thing. Yeah. Cause if you could sell me on, this is how much it just opens up your world. Like, Oh, look, like, this is just, there's no other way of doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. That type of thing. I feel like that, that at least for me is how I'd be sold because the utility is hard to beat. Right. Um, I was reading a book and it was talking about how, uh, back in the day for airplanes, they used to, the government used to regulate the price of what a flight was. 
Um, so, you know, whatever the price from Columbus to Chicago would be, would be the same on every single airplane, uh, airline. But the way that they differentiated themselves was by the quality of service. So that's why back in the day you see the pictures of people eating amazing meals and um, they have like the best service in the world. But then once they made it, they got rid of that regulation, all of a sudden became a battle for the cheapest. And the consumer quickly gave up the high-end luxury service to cheapest way to be cattle herded into another city. Mm-hmm. So they gave that up because they just cost was very important. So that's an interesting thing that people I feel like w- will be willing to pay for that uh, extra service and quality and everything like that. But I feel like a story is going to be a really fun way to, mm-hmm. to kind of get people to see themselves as something. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot is the ideal. Um, that there's a difference between the ideal you that you have in your brain and the real you. There's this kind of place you fall short, and that's actually what motivates us to buy products a lot of the time. It's this product will help me be more of myself that I think that I am. Mm. People that's don't realize true. that. So if you can tell a story that makes the person view like <laughs> like match up their ideal self with their real self, it helps. It, it, it makes the product get sold, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's just kind of my thought, and that's something that I've been battling with a lot, that idea of the ideal versus real, um, how we fall short of what we want to be and how different ways we try to patch that um, and how that relates to products um, too and you know how they can be bandages, but they also can be tools that help you know, make yeah. you live a better life. Yeah, product definitely has to speak to like the human experience. And I think one of the greatest stories that has been told like for – products that have been really successful is the everyday story. Mm. So like if a product fits in your everyday life and optimizes a part of that daily life, uh, like smartphones are kind of like the prime example for that, but there are lots of other examples as well. Um, You know, like kitchen appliances do that a lot. Yeah. Where uh, one of my, one of my good friends uh, registered when he got married, he registered for a Hamilton beach, uh, like breakfast sandwich maker and it's kind of this all in one it's like four stories and there's a spot for the egg and a spot for the sausage and both sides of the you know the sandwich like English muffin or whatever and it's this this big kind of clunky not super well made appliance but the reason that it appealed to him was because he just imagined himself eating this like delicious like breakfast sandwich every single morning Mm. And that sold him on it. And honestly, he gave me one of those sandwiches, and it was fantastic. (laughs) Um, So I'm absolutely not knocking the Hamilton Beach breakfast sandwich maker. Um, And that's kind of the story that, like, really gets people. This helps helps optimize my life. It helps make my everyday a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. That, like, that's the story that, that any product has to tell. And... I think being authentic about what coffee is and what coffee can be um, will help with that. I don't think that everyone's going to make that switch. I don't think everyone's going to sacrifice the convenience for the quality of the the drink. But I think that there's a group of people who are looking to, you know, maybe they're already into food. Maybe they like to cook. Maybe they're interested in different and new flavors and their coffee just doesn't match up to what their interest is. 
in the rest of their life. So bringing that up to date and making better coffee um, and also making more coffee beverage with less beans is also a really mm. great story to waste. tell. Uh, yeah, coffee is honestly a huge culprit of waste. Um, and I see that whenever uh, I talk to other people about how much coffee they put in their coffee pot, and it's just an obscene amount. Mm -hmm. It's way too much. Um, and that's because they're not extracting their coffee properly. Their machines aren't able to get the best out of the grounds that they have. And so they have to keep adding more and more to get the flavor that they want. Mm. Um, and I watched a really interesting video by James Hoffman. If you're into coffee at all, you know who he is. He's kind of uh, uh, the, the godfather of like coffee research, and he has a great presence on YouTube. Uh, and he did this video about a strain of coffee that hasn't been used. It hasn't been used for hundreds of years, actually. Um, and I forget what the name of the, the plant is, but... We've been using Arabica for a long time and Robusta uh, in smaller amounts, but Arabica is really the dominant uh, form that. of coffee. Uh, yeah, you see that usually like when you go into a gas station or a hotel and they're like 100% yeah. Arabica beans. It's not all that impressive. It is good to know that they're not using Robusta, which is kind of a, a more woody and burnt tasting okay. coffee. Um, but the, the climate where Arabica can grow successfully is shrinking. Um, and that's just reported by coffee farmers that are more on the fringes of the tropical areas mm -hmm. um, and in the middle as well, where they're kind of seeing temperatures go a little bit higher in their regions. And so this new coffee plant can be grown in warmer environments and still produces a, a sweet flavor. It doesn't have, like, the harshness that Robusta has. Mm. So this coffee strain was almost extinct. No yeah. one was growing it. It was only growing wild, um, and it was rediscovered recently. And so people are trying to develop that, that strain of coffee. So there is, a, there is an issue where we might not have enough Arabica to last us until this new coffee strain gets off the ground and people have the varietals that they want um, and it's widely grown. So how do we get from here to there? Well, we have to use less coffee. Mm. And whether that's making single cups instead of batches, right, where you have like a, almost a whole cup at the bottom of the pot that you don't drink every day, or whether that's getting more coffee for the, the same amount, having yeah. a higher yield. Um, so that's another consideration that I want to look at. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting because there's a lot that you can just, you can see, and I understand why you're going with the coffee thing, um, you can see a lot of kind of head scratchers. Mm -hmm. uh, like first of all, the amount of people that buy Starbucks or McDonald's or stuff like that a day that they don't need to. And it's like literally, you know, uh, six times more than what a much better cup of coffee would cost if you made it your own. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention waiting in line and stuff like that. Um, and then you also have the thing of the waste of the K-cups, the single pouch plastic that they're in. Um, I like the way Nespresso does it. They package their coffee in aluminum. Um, it keeps the coffee fresher longer and it's 100% uh, recyclable, which is yeah. really cool. I like, you know, I like that idea. Um, but again, that's kind of cost prohibitive, I think, is, a, I think right. is the right word. 
it kind of keeps people out because it is a little bit more expensive. Yeah, Frankly, espresso is almost two dollars a cup, is it not? Uh, no, it's it's one one dollar, but okay. still one dollar compared to I don't know. It, it's a hard sell, but it is yeah. nice. It is a great experience. The product is really good. Service is amazing. They do a lot of things really well. Um, yeah. I would say they're the closest thing to me to the Hamilton Beach sandwich maker. Right. Like because it's not. I'm sure uh, a, a real chef would say, how dare you make it in one of these machines? You have to fry the eggs in the skillet. You need to toast the bread on a buttered skillet and whatever, yeah. whatever. You have to be, like, they'll, they would say that. Then there's another person who says, you guys are idiots. I just microwave um, a j- whatever. Jimmy Dean. Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Dean sandwich and eat that. This is the streamlined version that gets you kind of the best of both worlds in a small package. Yeah, it is kind of clunky, whatever. It could be improved mm-hmm. upon, but... It's that middle ground. That's the Nespresso for me. It's not the K-cup. It's not the pour-over or French or whatever. I know it's some of that stuff. It's the in-between that gets yeah. me that eight. I would say it's more of an 80% of what I want mm. in, a, in, a simple, in a simple package. But your, your product is really intriguing. Um, I'd be curious to, to kind of see where that goes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about yours. Like what, what sure. kind of problems do you see in the market? What kind of holes are you trying to fill? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question like that's a tough question and I'm like really wrestling with my project um, I'm making it as hard on, my, on myself as possible and I, I kind of take pride in that but at the same time it's annoying um, right. but the idea that I w- from the beginning I was looking at big problems um, and trying to get to an- basically answering a, a, a problem uh, instead of instead of going at something I was passionate about, but luckily enough, I feel like there is overlap here. Um, and so saying that to say, I'm kind of looking at smartphones and humans' relationships with smartphones. Mm. Um, because I think that there's a lot of stuff going on um, with our smartphones that's extremely unhealthy. People know it's unhealthy. People want to use their phone less, but their screen time goes up 5% every week. Right, it's this. It's this. It's the battle of what you want versus what you do, um, because it's so convenient. It's right there, um, and people. In talking with people, they're saying like, "It's so nice to have just one thing in my pocket." And I'm, I'm saying to them, "You don't have one thing in your pocket. You have the whole world in your pocket." Mm. Right. It's this idea. Oh, this one physical thing. It's simple. I have control over it. But actually, no. It's like a portal to all the best parts of the world, all the worst parts of the world. And seeing how, especially especially kids' mental health has gone down the drain, um, how it's getting worse and worse. Obviously, that was, like, even worsened through the pandemic. You know, that, that did not help at all. Um, and then you have online schooling, all this stuff. And it's a very weird, uh, like, contradiction. I, there's a better word for it. But basically, the idea, like, almost, not, a, not a paradigm, uh, uh, I want to think of the word, it doesn't matter. Uh, but basically, the idea that the internet and all of its tools has equipped us to stay connected during a pandemic, but at the same time, that those same tools, when used in an incorrect way, are hurting our mental health. It's hurting our relationships with each other, it's causing more division. Um, and so, starting with that, I kind of have a thesis, I need to do more research. But it's because we don't have digital friction. Um, and that is our devices. And you'll see a million articles on this. Our devices and apps and everything are designed for there to be as little resistance to your use of the product as possible. 
infinite scrolling on every social media app. Uh, you have, so infinite scrolling, um, there's basically no friction between reading, you know, on the Bible app versus reading, uh, shopping on Amazon. You can go on your phone to do one thing. The next thing you know, you're doing nothing you ever intended to head out. And I'm saying it's this digital space that is something that we don't have in the real world. There is no real life, uh, real life reflection of this. If I want to go buy a sandwich and, and I'm here at the ICC, I have to leave the classroom, walk downstairs, take out my payment, pay for the sandwich in the little convenience shop, take a sandwich, walk back up. There's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, decisions being made to do that. How many times have you heard your, I don't know, for off the top of my head, you hear your phone ring, but you're on the couch doing something like now, like I'll get it later or something like that. Or for instance, like a charger, like your charger's over there. Like I'll just not use my phone for a little bit and just whatever. We're, we're pretty lazy people yeah. <laughs> in general, but, and that has just been exaggerated through digital, fric- uh, the lack of digital friction. Um, and so I'm trying to address the imp- impulsivity of smartphones, uh, and I'm also trying to make them better at the same time, which is hard because kind of like in what you're saying, people like convenience. People like knowing if they have their phone with them for 90% of the time, 95, even 99% of the time, they'll have everything they need with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at first my idea was, okay, what if I broke up the functions of a smartphone into multiple different devices that somehow connected and held together? but if you wanted to go out and just take something so you can text and call people, you could just take that and you wouldn't be taking your quote unquote social media device with you or whatnot. Think about that. And it, it, there's something felt off about it. I'm like, this is kind of stupid. Like, you know, people don't want to carry like Batman's utility belt with them everywhere they go um, just to go out and feel like they have everything they need. Um, and so then I kind of pivoted off of that to now I'm exploring um, basically how augmented reality could be used as a way to actually lessen our dependence or immersion in our phone. Um, kind of like how same, the same way people, um, I don't know if this is a great example, but with the cellular Apple Watch, feel like they can leave their phone behind because yeah. if anything actually bad happens, they'll, they'll know about it. If they are, there's actually an emergency that is need, like you know need to be taken care of. They're reachable, but it's not something that they'll consume content on something like that. Right. Um, so, basically, uh, developing augmented reality glasses that are meant as an assistant. They're not meant as like a consumption device, mm-hmm. right? Um, and pairing that with something that is better than a smartphone experience. Um, and I have some conceptual sketches. I'm working with uh, Ryan Dowd. And I'll say something about Ryan. He, he was on one of our earlier podcasts, but he doesn't like my idea. And I love it. I, I, I love it. It's forcing, we have fundamental different views on the way the future is going to go. Uh, but it, it's this constant reality check because I have a habit of going deep into rabbit holes of, you know, just me and no other voice. Hmm. Um, and having a voice that actively disagrees with me um, is, is good. I, I think it really helps me um, not settle on an idea. And I haven't settled on an idea. It's been really annoying. <laughs> it's been really tough. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of my overall thing. I mean, like, I, I, some questions might help guide my rambling a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, like, you're talking about minimizing 
the the smartphone's presence in yeah. someone's everyday life. But your your concept is to do that through kind of an always on augmented reality kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So how do you create what you were talking about, digital friction with something that is always in front of your eyes? Yeah, so that's a great question. And part of that is just be it's hard for me to illustrate what my idea is, especially in like with words over a podcast. Yeah. Um but a big a big jumping off of a, a thing that made me start to go this direction was the idea of the metaverse with Facebook. Um I didn't like it. I didn't like the idea of basically there being a heavier worth and value in the, the augmented world. world. Yeah, the virtual world and the real world. And so that concept, a key concept I brought over into my capstone right now, um, is the idea that the augmented reality glasses actually rely on reality to function. Mm. So, for instance, if you want to know the weather, you look up at the sky, and I'll show you the forecast, whatever. Um, if you want to text someone, you don't, you don't uh, have a screen cover your entire face. You actually pull out your quote-unquote phone. I don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. But that's used as like the hub, the keyboard, and you type on this cell phone, but the screen is actually hovering above it. So the screen actually is on the device you're interacting with. But when the device is in that orientation, you can only use it for that function. You flip it sideways, then now you're in whatever, a different mode of function. So there's actually physical changes you're making to the way you're interacting with a device between functions. Um, it's not the same form of digital friction as what I originally uh, intended, but also having the idea that you have what you need in front of you and you won't be as easily sidetracked and you need to change the orientation of the device, change the way you're interacting with the device for different functions will indicate to other people what you're doing, um, will cause your brain to flip a switch because now you're doing a different function. Um, that's a concept I'm playing with, and I don't believe it's fully developed enough yet um, to be classified as like complete digital friction. But at the same time, I want people to want it, which yeah. is hard. So I that want to add digital friction, but that digital friction has a payoff in a way to interact with a device that's better than tapping on a small smartphone screen, right? Mm. So well, so third-party development has is a multi-billion-dollar industry at mm-hmm. this point, especially for smartphones. So, when you have kind of a limited number of functions on this device, like how does third-party development fit yeah. in that world? That's a really great question, um, and it's something that I haven't put um, enough thought into. I would say yet. Um, I would say that I, I do think uh, third-party development, in a way, can be over overrated. Like people praise oh, yeah. praise uh, Android for their third party development, but what that's gone into is privacy concerns, um, basically exploitation of people like senior citizens and stuff like that by malware, um, lying like that. Um, having a somewhat closed system is good. Apple also comes under flag for like almost like predatory uh, monetary policy where they're stripping thirty percent of revenue from the companies that they're working. Um, so the app system, I, I feel like uh, development is huge. That's a great way for innovation. Um, and it's something I need to look into more. Uh, I, I've thought about basically a way to inter- interact or, okay, backing up a little bit. I'm trying to imagine a device that has, you know, four or five different ways to interact with it, if not more, maybe like 10 ways that you can hold it, orient it in a way that implies a different function. And I was thinking... In those 10 ways, different apps would kind of choose 
the way that they're functioned with. Almost like instead of like a file that you click on that has all your, you know, finance apps in it, there's a way you hold your device that now gives you access to your finance apps. Um, and also another part of my project, see this is the thing, it's really cloudy. And that's how I know my project isn't ready. I think a good project should be able to be said in a sentence. Right. Like one sentence. And if you can't say it in a sentence, it's bad. Right now my idea is bad. Not saying that the concept is bad, not saying that it can't be a good project, but it's not ready yet. It's not, it's not baked yet. But so that being said, I'm also thinking I don't want somebody to feel like they need to wear these glasses to interact with their phone, but I want the way the phone looks, make it a black and white screen, make it a small screen, make it a slightly inconvenient, make it so you're incentivized to put on the glasses to have a, a better experience um, than not. Um, I'm also looking at like what would it look like for a computer to be on your wrist. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to explore stuff, and a key thing that I'm keeping on, in the back of my mind is that since I'm dealing with a concept, this isn't something I can actually you know build a prototype of. Yeah. Since I'm dealing with a concept, I need to keep it blue sky, but keep it believable. Make it so I can point to current technology, existing technology, um, emerging technology, point at that and say, hey, this is how it could apply in this situation. Keep it believable, but keep it a concept. Um, and I want to design a future that enhances people's life and their digital life uh, and their real life at the same time, instead of continually sucking people deeper and deeper down the, uh, you know, into the yeah. internet. You know. So I don't know if you remember this, but there was a company. I think it was an Indiegogo. Uh, they started development on this the light phone. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is, that's like the extreme version of this, where there is no third-party development, yeah. and the, the functions are very limited. Yeah. I don't think that ever really took off. I know there were a lot of backers uh, initially, but I, don't, I know they came out with a version two, and I don't think they've done anything since then. Absolutely. So like, how do you see this project going in a different way than that? Absolutely. So there's a fundamental, I think, flaw in that idea, and it's not necessarily their fault, and this is just my opinion. Um, it's not their fault, but basically, a lot of our life is online. A lot of our life is digital. Um, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff, Snapchat. It's a lot of our life is online, and by going to the light phone, you are now abandoning all of that. Your digital existence is gone. And my thesis is not as much. And there isn't a device that you could get that is just Twitter or just Facebook. I mean, you could go to your desktop and use that. Right. But they're, by doing this, you're committing to cold turkey. And cold turkey in the you know, therapy world is known as a generally bad thing to do. Like weaning off is you know, popular. There's therapies and everything's like that. Going cold turkey will actually just make people more upset, more frustrated, and just switch back to their old phone more. And that experience is worse. It's a worse experience with texting than on a smartphone. There's not a better experience. You're, you're asking less of your device, but you know that there's better out there. So where mine kind of goes off of that route is that it's not stripping away all functionality to the bare minimum for a worse experience because, you know, you're just tired of your smartphone. It's developing a healthy relationship with technology. Technology is good. It's easy to crap on technology, but how many people were able to talk to their grandparents over the pandemic? Uh, you can, you can, there's so much. I, I, there's honestly so much good that um, the internet and technology and smartphones do. 
Yeah. To pretend that the only good things they do is texting and calling, just it's not true. It's 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 just false. Um, and so where I, I guess I'm saying that I'm using a lot of words to say not a lot, but I guess the idea is I'm not asking the user to completely abandon their smartphone. I'm just asking them to interact with it in a different way that there's more friction. Um, hopefully, and if my design gets to a better spot. Yeah. I think, like, the only thing that jumps out at me, and this just occurred to me, is one of the major, uh, one of the major interactions that people have with their smartphone is to capture memories with their camera. Absolutely. So, I think, like, just as an aside, that's an important interaction to Mm -hmm. include, because my girlfriend has 47,000 photos on her phone. Uh, which is it, that's a crazy number I don't think everyone has that many photos but that's certainly one of the most important aspects mm-hmm. and it's one of the most I think uh, it's one of the least detrimental interactions that occurs like oh yeah absolutely to capture memories and be able to remember things and it's really useful too like if you gotta take pictures of notes or whatever yeah uh, but yeah but, and a lot of that stuff comes down to sharing um and that's an interesting part of my project because I do imagine the augmented reality glasses in my brain. And again, it's, it's tough. It's not there yet. I know it's not there yet. There's yeah. not enough specificity in the wrong places. But um, the idea of the glasses interacting with the real physical world, right? It's not a screen in front of your eyes. It's, for instance, you are wearing just a band, like a, just a fitness tracker band on your wrist. You look at your wrist with the augmented reality glasses and hovering above it is all your biometrics, like how many steps you took, all that stuff. And you interact with the watch, aka the physical world, to move the screen that's digital, augmented in your glasses. Now, that I think opens up ideas for development much further. So imagine all of a sudden you're a company that moves into a business and you add these, let's just say these IR blasters, whatever, onto where your billboard, not your billboard, your signage or your store is. Now all of a sudden, if I have these augmented reality glasses, I look. There's a physical indicator, and it shows their sign in a way that the physical world can never actually mm. show. Or, for instance, living rooms. How are living rooms set up? They're set up, if there's a TV, and a U around the TV. Right. There are, everything's facing one direction. Theaters, everything's facing one direction. It doesn't promote conversation. Now, imagine, theoretically, there's a dot in the center of your room that's the indicator to the glasses that this is where the TV is. So, when you're watching a TV show with your family or whatever, you're all gathered around and watching it. But when it's off, all of a sudden you have a living room where everybody's actually looking at each other, talking to each other. So your life isn't evolving around this mm. digital. So that's, that's the part that gets me excited is the idea of the relationship between the digital and the physical, making it something that you, these constraints that technology has given us and actually breaking those down and making it something that, I don't know, kind of, it's very blue sky. And it's very yeah. conceptual, and I guarantee you I won't be able to get to all the details in my brain of where I want this to go. Mm. Um, but I'm letting my brain go there now. I'm chipping away at this, you know. Right now I think it's a block of marble. It might be a, a block of crap. Yeah. But, you know, trying to get to the sculpture at the center, right? And that, that's my process for a lot of things. Yeah, so I have a question that might take a while to ask. So you, you're talking about kind of a, a world where technology is kind of seamless with reality. That's that's the goal. So I think that's a really interesting reality to look at. 
I think one of the consequences is perhaps that there's more unsolicited interaction with technology. Mm. So whenever you get a notification on your phone, you might open that notification, yeah. but then before you know it, you're still on your phone 15, 20 minutes later. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that more unsolicited interaction with technology is the solution to too much time on technology? So how do you, when you say unsolicited uh, interaction, what, what's an example of that in my talking, ramblings? You there? mentioned like, uh, the, like the, signage. The, the signage. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're exactly right. Uh, like in privacy is a big concern and things like that. Uh, I feel like it should be a center of every technology company is like startup. That should be one of their big things. Cause that's a huge issue that everybody's concerned about their data, their privacy. California is one of the only States where you actually have control over your, your data. Um, it's a big pain in the butt for the data companies, but, um, yeah. So when I say a seamless interaction, I would say what is more like, okay, well, let me take a step back. People will say, now this isn't really answering your question, but I'm going to say it anyways. People will say like, you know, taping a screen to your face, whatever, that's more plugged in than it is if you have a phone in your pocket. Well, what's more seamless? You're walking down the aisle at Walmart and the list of your groceries is hovering beside you or you're looking down, taking yourself out of reality and looking down at your cell phone instead of looking at the world around you to see your list of groceries, right? I would argue that the one with the notes next to you, it's unobtrusive. It's something simple. It's just aiding your memory while you interact. That is not at all an answer to your question, but my thought, my brain went there, so I said that. Um, but in terms of unsolicited interaction... I feel like a key part of that will just be like embedding controls or limitations or at least having kind of a thought for that. And, and there's been plenty of technology in the past that has been made without thought of how can this be exploited, right? Um, and for years, up until recently, the iPhone would let Instagram, Facebook, and stuff track you across apps and see what, where you use and what, whatnot. It would let you do that, right? Um, so I feel like this would be a really interesting almost – just experiment, even though I'm sure that's not a great thing, but just to see how people could take something where the digital world and the real world are kind of married in a way that enhances the real world, encourages people. Imagine you're outside on a hike and, you're in, and you get to look at a tree and I'll tell you the species or something. Um, but yeah, I'm really doing a, a classic... Uh, I've really gone off the rails on this answer. <laughs> I'm really doing a classic um, understanding uh, inputs... Uh, affordances, different things like that, and how it can affect your relationship with the device yeah. um, in general. Uh, so looking at voice input, looking at all this stuff, uh, what things do I want people to have to say out loud, right? Mm -hmm. If people had to read out all their mean tweets before they actually had to send them out loud, where they were sending them, would they send them? You know, like stuff yeah. like that. And I'm also exploring that because there's real things that people will or won't do based on the context and their surroundings, but your phone lacks that context. Mm. So, so I'm exploring that as well. Um, there's, there's a lot to be, there, there's a lot of stuff to be explored. Um, but yeah, do you have any other like questions and stuff? Yeah. Well, I, I think that you can just tell like listening to us talk that this is the very beginning stages of yeah. these projects. Yeah. And there's so much more to look at so much more to learn. I feel like I have a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, and, I don't know, I'm just excited about it. It's, it too. seems a long way away. 
16 weeks from now. Yeah. But I know that it's going to be gone before I know. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it, it, it's stressful to think about, um, but excited. Excited, you know? Yeah. And it's part of the reason I chose this project is because you can ask Ryan. Uh, I knew him before I went to the ICC. I've been talking about this idea for a very long time. It's been in my brain since 2016, right? I, uh, this is something that I, I think it, the stress comes from thinking about all the years I thought about my capstone. Or this is going to be my, uh, what would they call it? Uh, magnum opus. Yeah, my magnum, magnum opus? Yeah. Uh, all right, that. Um, that. That's what I thought this was. And that's the pressure, I think, that we feel mm. um, more than anything. It's, again, the ideal. What we thought this was going to be versus, hey, now it's time. Now it's time to go. Now yeah, it's time to now work. Now you gotta like actually go find people to talk to, and you gotta get the information. You gotta absolutely come up with actual solutions. Yeah, you have to commit to one. Commit. That's the worst. I, I could sit and talk all day about ideas for the future. Yeah, and I can sit and judge other people's ideas and say, "Oh, this is good. This is bad. This is whatever." But when it's you, you know the famous quote. I use that as my senior quote actually at Heritage. Uh, it was uh, the famous Teddy Roosevelt man in the arena. Um, you know, do you know that quote? No, I don't. I'll read it off uh, real quick. I feel like this would be a good way to end. Uh, one second. Uh, I remember I was on a bus going to a sectional football game, and I got an email saying that I had to uh, <laughs> that I had to submit a senior quote, and I just looked up, you know, good quotes, and I saw this one. I'm like, yeah, this one, and it, it's hilarious because ever since then, I've always thought about it. Um, I feel like this is really critical for industrial designers and people in general. Um, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiant, valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those, uh, those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Yeah, um, that's a great way to end. I, I think that's, that's something that we should remember, and... I'm looking forward to more podcasts. It's nice to be back and talk about it. Oh, yeah. Um, it's good to get stuff out there. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>